Welcome to Block Stars, Ripple's podcast that features leaders in crypto and blockchain. I'm your host, Ripple CTO David Schwartz, and I'm joined today with Professor of Economics and Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley, Barry Eichengreen. Great to have you on our show. Good to be here. So tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, your background and how you got interested in crypto. Well, I'm an international economist, a monetary economist, and also an economic historian, meaning that I study current economic problems that have also arisen in the past. One of my central interests is the gold standard, uh, the 19th century, dominant 19th century international monetary arrangement. And there is kind of a parallel between the gold standard and crypto. So I get asked to lunch by people who want to explore that parallel. There is kind of a libertarian bent in portions of the crypto sphere, and uh, gold bugs share that bent. Not me personally, but a lot of people who are interested in the gold standard share that political, uh, philosophical inclination as well. So that has led me to be invited to conferences and lunches and meetings where, where these topics come up. Gold doesn't really have any intrinsic value. It has very limited industrial uses. It has ornamental value, but people value it because they think it's safe and secure and that it will hold its value because other people value it. And there is, from that point of view, a parallel with cryptocurrencies that are not stable coins, which are supposed to have an intrinsic value. You're supposed to be able to convert them one for one into the dollar or another government-backed unit. But if we're talking about Bitcoin, for example, there isn't material backing. There isn't an industrial use for Bitcoin any more there than there is for gold. It's valued. People pay, pay actual U.S. dollars for it because they think other people will value it and pay actual U.S. dollars for it. So if we sort of took a, an economist out of like cryogenic stasis and he missed the world for the last 10 or 20 years and you wanted to explain Bitcoin to him, would you start out by saying it's like gold, but? Yeah, I think I would. And I would go on and say differently from gold, Bitcoin can be used more conveniently for payments because it's a token and uh, it is secured by uh, blockchain. People use it for, for actual transactions where carrying around gold coin or blocks of gold bullion is less convenient. Yeah, well, you'll frequently hear people say, like when they're trying to explain Bitcoin to people, you'll sometimes hear them use the two words digital gold, meaning it's like gold, but it's a digital, it's something that sort of lives in the digital world. Yeah, so I, I, I think there is an analogy there. And that's the reason why some people who think that gold is a good Inflation hedge, for example, it's something that you would want to invest in, hold in inflationary times, make a similar argument about cryptocurrencies. Well, that leads right into, I think, an area that's quite interesting, which is um, we're recording this in mid-June of 2020 in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. And there's been some unusual changes in, in monetary policy throughout the world. Is that a fair description of what's going on? That's fair. So, how, so 
does that mean that people need an inflation hedge or does that make the people more interested in inflation hedges? And is there anything about this situation that makes digital assets a particularly good or bad inflation hedge, if that's what people want? There's an unusually high degree of uncertainty about everything these days. And that extends to the outlook for inflation. Uh, having lived through a long period where there was minimal inflation in the United States and and around the world, there's the possibility that at some point now we could be exiting that state where central banks will be succeeding in achieving their uh, a goal that has eluded them now for many years, which is to run a higher rate of inflation. They may want to do that because that will help them and governments with managing all the debt that they're incurring as a result of the health crisis and the economic crisis. So with this uncertainty, people are looking around for ways to protect themselves against the possibility of inflation. To be clear, I don't think this is a risk anytime soon. Uh, we can have a follow-up to this podcast in 2030, and there may be an inflation problem at that point. But I think we're now entering a period where private spending is going to be weak, very weak. Households understand as a result of the crisis that they don't have enough money in the bank. They don't have precautionary savings sufficient to pay the rent for a couple of months if they're out of work or, or put food on the table. So I think consumption spending is not going to bounce back quickly to where it was before the pandemic. Companies are uncertain what the economic landscape will look like. Will tourism come back? Will hospitality come back? Or to the contrary, will the pandemic come back? They will be in wait and see mode as well. So I think private spending, both consumption and investment will be sufficiently weak that governments can continue doing what they're doing without material inflation. So if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that reductions in spending and consumption are essentially deflationary. And so that sort of takes the inflationary edge off the government's creation of new money. Right. So you get um, inflation when you have more spending than you do production. People want more, more goods and services than are available. If people are not spending that that's deflationary. Firms have to lower their prices to sell what they have in inventory. And I think we saw the same thing with the last crisis, where there was a lot of new spending and new money produced, although perhaps not on the scale of this. And there were a lot of people saying that that was going to cause drastic inflation. And we didn't really see that inflation. While there was new money in the system, it didn't really move very much. Yeah, there was, there was a famous letter by 30 prestigious economists warning the Federal Reserve that inflation was right around the corner. And in fact, it wasn't. Um, so we in the economics profession do learn a little bit from history. And you hear those warnings less frequently this time around. So do you think the Fed's doing the right thing by ramping up um, the production of new money? I do. This, this pandemic is tantamount to fighting a war. And uh, I think the Fed has to do what it takes to keep financial markets functioning, which is what it is doing by buying everything that moves. And there will be a bill to pay down the road. Uh, there is all this liquidity sloshing around in markets, and it's going into 
strange places now into countries like Brazil and Turkey, where the economic and health situation is even worse than here. And there will be problems as a result of that. The stock market is awfully high, and we can't rule out the possibility that it'll come down with a crash at some point. But that's the problem for tomorrow. At this point, we have to keep the economy going and the financial markets going. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So what's the role for cryptocurrencies in the situation today? I think um, cryptocurrencies are still kind of a, a niche product, a niche financial aspect from this point of view. The Fed, you'll notice, uh, intervened in almost every financial market out there except for the crypto market. So maybe that's telling you something about what's essential at this point and what's not. The Fed was really concerned about the municipal bond market and about the corporate bond market, but not about the, the crypto market, because I guess it doesn't view it as essential to the operation of the economy, unlike those other markets. There was, uh, I bet you also noticed, an interesting conversation back in April about the grave difficulty that the Treasury and the IRS had at getting $1,200 checks to people. And that opened up a discussion about whether there should be a Federal Reserve cryptocurrency, a central bank digital currency, or whether some other crypto-like unit could be used to get that money to people more effectively. So I think that conversation will come back. How much has the, the situation in the United States affected by the fact that the U.S. dollar has been the world's dominant reserve currency? Well, it gives the U.S. what uh, a French finance minister in the 1960s, Giscard d'Estaing, called our exorbitant privilege, that we have kind of an automatic form of insurance when something goes wrong in financial markets, something goes wrong in the world. People rush into our markets rather than out of them. Other countries see money hemorrhaging out of their economies. Here, when a bad thing happens, money floods in, which is kind of a cushion against those bad things. Uh, our markets are the most liquid in the world. Cross-border business is done predominantly in, in the dollar, so everybody wants liquidity and dollars when a bad thing happens. And that was true even in 2008 when we did the bad thing by allowing Lehman Brothers to fail. The dollar strengthened. Everybody rushed, rushed into dollars, and our economy was cushioned. With exorbitant privilege comes exorbitant responsibility. We also have to worry about those global dollar markets, even when they're located in London or Hong Kong or wherever. So the Fed ramped up uh, facilities providing liquidity through swaps and repurchase agreements to central banks around the world. Uh, the Fed opened up its balance sheet to these foreign central banks so they could get the dollars they needed in March and April. Fortunately for us and for the world, the Congress doesn't understand that process well, because I think it wouldn't approve the Fed helping these foreign central banks, not all of which are clearly the administration's friends with dollars when they need them. 
So would you say the coronavirus is similar to the periods of war and unrest that you wrote about in your book in 2017, How Global Currencies Work? I think this um, pandemic and crisis are different because we've never really had a crisis before that was precipitated by the need to shut down the economy. Typically, what you have is demand collapsing because of a financial crisis or bank failures or something. This time, we collapse supply on purpose, and that will, down the road, give give rise to um, uh, foreclosures. And when uh, people can't pay their mortgages, mortgage companies will get into trouble, and banks will then get into trouble. But this is a different kind of crisis. Typically, a financial crisis is very fast moving. If you remember 2008, 2009, you remember that. This one is kind of going to be a slow motion crisis as uh, these foreclosure problems and banking problems and corporate uh, bankruptcy problems slowly percolate through the system. So I don't think there are really good historical analogies for what we're about to go through. One theory I've heard is that a key difference between the situation we have now is that particular industries have been very, very hard hit, anything related to travel, for example. Um, whereas typically before, you might have like a general re a general reduction in the economy that kind of affects all sectors equally. And the problem with that is that if, if you lose the airline industry, that has very profound effects on, let's say, like the production of jet fuel. It has profound effects on everything related to tourism. So you have this sort of, it's almost like you've cut giant holes in the economy. So I'm not sure I agree with that. If I think back to 2008, 2009, it was the motor vehicle industry. And we responded with cash for clunkers and uh, auto sector bailout. I don't think if we end up allowing the airlines to go bankrupt, that will really profoundly affect the, the economy. It'll, it'll affect shareholders in the airlines. But the airplanes will be there. The gates will be there. The pilots will be there. Somebody else will come along and repaint the planes and off they'll go. Most every economic downturn affects some sectors more than others. But I do think we will have a challenge going forward. What we've been trying to do so far is keep everybody afloat. And that's a good thing, given the uh, human distress that occurs when you don't help people stay afloat. Yeah, that tends to be my thinking, too, that the that industry bailouts tend to help the people who invested in those industries, whereas if the business could continue to survive, it will, regardless of who owns it or what the finances are. Most airlines have declared bankruptcy a couple of times. It's not that unusual. The plane, the plane still flies. I think, I think I agree with you on that. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about the narrative of digital currencies as a store of value. Is that the same thing as an inflation hedge? Yeah, it, it's basically the same thing. Although when people talk about inflation hedges, they think about an explosion of inflation. And you need to move into some alternative asset that will hold its value. I think in the case you're now describing, people are talking more, thinking more about um, simply... In, in inflation rising to 5% from 1% and bonds uh, losing a bit of their value as a result of that. So um, quantitatively, they're a little different, but qualitatively, we're, we're basically talking about the same thing. Um, 
stable coins give you a little, little bit of protection from that kind of inflation. But, uh, you know, if the uh, price level is going up by 5%, the dollar is lo losing 5% of its purchasing power. And your stable coin pegged to the dollar is going to lose 5% of its purchasing power as well. Well, and I think also part of the revenue model for a stablecoin issuer or operator, if it's not a bank, is that they get to hold everybody else's money. Uh, whereas if inflation is eating away the value of that money and there's no relatively safe place that can put that money that's give them any, gonna give them any kind of return, it doesn't seem like a very good business to be in. There are two kinds of stablecoins out there, the ones that are partially backed by the dollar or uh, another similar currency, and those that are fully backed, fully collateralized over collateralized. The partially backed stable coins are fragile and I don't think will last. And the fully backed stable coins are expensive to run because you've got to get all those dollars and more than 100% of the dollars. Right. You're, you're issuing in stable coin form and, and those don't scale. I think the other issue too is given the uncertainty um, today even if you peg it to some particular fiat asset, let's say dollars or euros, how stable are dollars going to be relative to euros or relative to, to value as well? Right. So that does kind of bring us to, to Libra version 1.0, which was going to be pegged to a basket. Um, in the normal state of affairs, nobody particularly wants to hold a basket, but in a very volatile environment like we appear to have entered, maybe that becomes more attractive because it does give you the benefits of diversification. Um, but Libra, in response to regulatory pushback, has, of course, moved in the other direction to a set of single currency stablecoins. So you called the original Libra a terrible idea, and now it almost sounds like you're saying that circumstances have changed to make that a slightly better idea, and perhaps their new idea is the new terrible idea. Well, I can't take credit for that. Uh, the Washington Post asked me to write an op-ed on the day the white paper came out, and it was their headline. Um, they said it more forcefully than I did. I should have been as brave as their headline writers were. But um, I think uh, Libra is uh, a non-starter. It is a terrible idea to use the Washington Post language for a variety of other reasons uh, as well, that it will raise financial stability concerns for society and there will be stability issues for the, the, the holders of such a currency as well. I think there's also a concern that if you have this sort of diversified group of stakeholders holding the collateral, they're all essential. You can't afford to lose any significant fraction of your collateral. So it sounds like the more you diversify, the more vulnerable you wind up. Yeah, I think that could be the case. And that, the other thing that worries me a lot is that the version 2.0 of the Libra white paper talks about smart contracts based on, on Libra. So you're going to have to educate me a little bit about smart contracts. An economist would think about them as derivatives. They're other instruments that are built on top of the basic instrument and have additional characteristics. I think whether Libra wants it or not, were it to exist, an ecosystem of these derivatives or smart contracts would grow up around it. And then 
you can have problems in these different market segments. You're going to need a Libra lender of last resort to step in like the Fed has done for the dollar and provide liquidity at times when the market seizes up, which it can from time to time. And uh, according to the design, there will be no Libra lender of last resort. Rather, there will, there will be gates, which is the finance term for you can't get your money back when you want it. And I think once people read that fine print, uh, this instrument will appear to them less attractive. It won't have all the insurance and liquidity properties, the convenience value they thought it, it would. Yeah, one thing I think I've seen over and over in many, many different things over the past few years is this idea that people come up with a new technology and they say, oh, we can throw away all of these contrivances and crazy things that we had to do in the past because we didn't have this amazing technology. And then they very quickly discover that there was actually some reasons for those things and that uh, they start reinventing the same problems that all of those contrivances around the old technology fixed. I sometimes talk about bed bugs because... Our parents and grandparents probably knew what to do about bed bugs, and I don't because they've not been, you know, a problem in my life. And of course, now they're coming back. You you sound even more skeptical about some of the stuff that's going on in in obscure corners of the technology sphere than I am. Well, I mean, one of the things like the cryptocurrency scams, like the absence, uh, like the risks around derivatives where, you know, we had a derivative market that gets much, much greater than the market for the principles that they're derivatives of. And then things go wrong in those markets that are not, they're not intuitively obvious uh, until they, until, you know, until they break. And that's an argument for, if I can use the R word, regulation. And this is why developments in, in, in the crypto sphere are problematic, that there is a sound argument for why you need regulation on consumer protection grounds, for example, on uh, systemic stability grounds, on market integrity grounds. But part of the appeal of, of these instruments is that they're not regulated. So I can't imagine China's happy with the U.S. dollar being the world reserve currency. And there's an awful lot of Bitcoin and Ethereum mining going on in China. Is there a geopolitical struggle that crypto is part of? There is a geopolitical struggle, obviously, between the U.S. and China. That spills over into the international monetary sphere and I think inevitably into the crypto sphere as well. China has been trying now for about a decade to foster wider global or cross-border use of its own currency, the yuan or, or renminbi. And one way it's trying to do that is by becoming the first central bank, possibly later this year, to issue its own central bank cryptocurrency, a central bank digital currency that'll be pegged one-to-one -to, -one to the yuan. They talk about that a lot, and they are piloting the idea in a few cities at home. The problem will be to actually get people in, in other countries to use it as well, in the same way that people around the, the world use dollars at the moment. I saw an article recently that I thought shed very interesting light on this. Merchants in Seoul, South Korea were asked two questions. Number one, do you accept Alipay? Do you currently accept digital payments via this big platform from your Chinese customers? 
They all answered yes, pretty much. And then they were asked, would you accept People's Bank of China official central bank digital currency? And I think many of them paused. The question on their mind was, would there be an ID? Would there be a backdoor? Would the PBOC be able to track those transactions? So, uh, this, you know, this is a concern people have about 5G. And I think it spills over to the central bank digital currency space. And it reinforces some arguments about crypto that it provides confidentiality that people have real concerns about when they think about China. So one of the ways I think about central bank digital currencies, I don't see any central bank issuing a token on a decentralized blockchain that has like privacy features or that has the kind of features that that blockchains like like Ethereum have. And so I kind of wonder, like, what would a central bank digital currency be if not just digital fiat, which is nothing new? It is nothing new. So at the moment, regulated commercial banks have digital accounts at the Fed and they do digital transactions with the Fed every day. The innovation would be that you and I would have retail accounts at the Fed and it would transfer money uh, from the Fed directly to us, maybe in a digital wallet, something like that. But uh, you're right, it wouldn't be the equivalent of a cryptocurrency on a blockchain. So the innovation is excluding the middlemen, which in this case is the banks and the payment companies. Right. And there, and that's one reason why it's not going to happen soon or widely, that the banks actually do some useful things. Um, I hesitate to say, but it's true. And this would be a, a very fundamental challenge to their business model. In June 2019, you wrote about the Bank of England and the banks of France weighing in on climate change. Is, is that something odd for central bankers to talk about? Is there a connection between climate change and monetary policy? It, it is uh, a little bit odd for the following reason. We delegate uh, policy to the central bank. They are an independent agency of government. The Congress can't really tell them what to do on a day-to-day -day basis. We trust them to do the right thing autonomously because they're given a, a, a narrow mandate, keep inflation near 2% and keep financial markets from blowing up. And we can monitor their success or failure. We can evaluate whether their policy decisions are warranted or not by looking at whether inflation is close to 2%, whether financial markets are blowing up or not, and listening to their arguments, their press conferences about how their decisions map into their mandate, into their objectives. If they start acquiring all kinds of, of additional objectives, they're supposed to be concerned about climate change or they're supposed to be concerned about fiscal policy or whatever, then all of a sudden we have these independent technocrats who can do whatever they want. And we can't really hold them accountable for their actions because we can't evaluate their actions in terms of their impact on the institution's well-defined mandate. So that's why I get queasy whenever central bankers go off and start talking about stuff that is not central to what they're supposed to be doing. At the same time, climate change will affect in, in inflation at some point by disrupting supply, for example. It may affect financial stability if all of a sudden you have what 
economists call stranded assets. You have coal companies that go bankrupt or their shares suddenly can't trade. So central bankers have to think about climate change, but I think mainly insofar as it bears directly on their central mandate. So how about in the blockchain space? Um, how concerned are you about the electricity consumption of proof-of-work-based blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum? Well, when I, when I hear what's the right metric that mining consumes as much energy as Iceland or Ireland in a day, I think that's worth monitoring. And were it to continue to grow, it would become a, a serious issue. I hear... I don't fully understand that the way proof of work uh, is done can be made more energy efficient, is being made more energy efficient. That would be helpful. Well, then let's switch to tokenomics. Do you think it's realistic for two tokens that are both sort of competing for the store of value narrative to distinguish themselves by properties that don't directly relate to their suitability as a store of value? And I think a key example is how quickly you can transfer them or how cheaply you can transfer them. Does that matter? In the, in the past, we have had different currencies circulating side by side in a single country. We had this in the United States in the 19th century during the free banking era from the 1830s up through the Civil War. Pretty much every bank issued it its own currency, and some could be exchanged more easily for goods and services than others. They fluctuated in value, so a dollar wasn't always a dollar, even though your, your banknote and my banknote both had one dollar written on their front. So it was those other features, how, how easily they could be used for payment and so forth, that, that did distinguish them. So could we get this future world where everything is tokenized and you can have a single platform or some set of platforms where you could hold interests in obscure companies around the world, securities of all kinds? Could we get to that kind of world where basically everything is a token and you can just store value in any form that you want at any time? Well, you've, you've spoken about store of value, David. Uh, it's also important to think about unit of account. That's the other characteristic of an attractive monetary instrument, that it's easy to measure value using it. And, and there's great utility in having a uniform value of account where all the shares traded on, on a stock exchange are, val are valued in terms of, of dollars. So you can compare the costliness of buying one with the cost of buying another one if uh, everybody was using his own token, price comparisons would become really difficult. You'd have to sit down and, and look up at the value of David's token every time David arrived at, at your store. And that that's basically the way it worked in the 19th century, that every merchant had a telephone book like publication. It was called a note reporter. And they had to look up the value of every banknote when it was presented to them. You're kind of suggesting people would be able to look up the value of a, every token. It, it would be easier now. There's an app for that, presumably, but it would still be complicated. Well, I'll give you the sort of far out there argument, which is essentially that these sort of units of account were a solution to a problem that we can now solve better. 
Like I can use whatever unit of account I want and I can have a device that just reports prices in the unit of account that I prefer to use for whatever I do. The, the, and like the, the really far out there version is that like the only reason that we need money is because if I go, if I'm in Detroit stopping at a Starbucks, they can't know if I'm a generally helpful person or whether I've been going to every Starbucks in Detroit asking them for a cup of coffee. And in theory, like if we could track all that in a machine, that in a giant database that everybody could easily access that you wouldn't have a need for a sort of general unit of account. I think that's pretty far out there, though. I think it's pretty far out, too. You know, we got money because of uh, the coincidence of wants problem that you you wanted to buy a cup of coffee and I wanted to sell a cup of tea and there there couldn't be a meeting of the minds, but with money we could we could there could be two separate stores or or, or whatever. I, I guess I'm old fashioned enough to believe to agree with what you said before that every everybody could have their own token and that would seamlessly substitute for the dollar for what we now think of as money in the unit of account because the machine could figure out what the relative value of those different uh, tokens were at every point in time. Far out is a good way of describing it. Well, we're just about out of time, Barry. Uh, why don't you tell us what you think the blockchain and crypto industry will be over the next couple of years? Well, I think the endeavors that are going to survive are, are those that have practical value. So I don't think that thinking about crypto as speculative, speculative investments is really a long-term viable business model that speculative investments have come and gone throughout history. And, and you know, the tulips came as a speculative investment and, and, and they went, except insofar as they still have that ornamental value. But I think um, the, the units that provide actual tangible services like cross-border payments are the, are the ones that are likely to have legs. So that may be why you and I are talking today. It's not by no means a plug, but I do think that there are problems like cross-border payments that need dedicated solutions and that crypto can be part of that. I have to ask you one last question. Gaze into your crystal ball and tell me what can we expect for the U.S. economy or the world economy generally for the rest of 2020 and 2021? Uh, I think it's going to be very bumpy. Your question is a better one to ask of an epidemiologist than an economist. From all indications, the virus is still out there. And as long as that's the case, states and countries that open up will have to close down periodically, and that'll be a bumpy ride. Thank you, Barry, for joining me today. It was fun, David. Thank you. It was a pleasure hosting you on Ripple's podcast, Block Stars. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions about this episode or any feedback for new episodes, please reach out to me on Twitter at Joel Katz, J-O-E-L-K-A-T-Z, or to Ripple on Twitter at Ripple. See you around the blockchain. Blockchain.